A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So, welcome to the History of the Heavyweight Championship of the World, a podcast from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of 10. In this series, I will take a look at one year in the sports history. I will cover all the heavyweight championship fights, the stories, characters, outrageous acts, fairy tales, knockouts, controversies, inventions, and one or two lies. Well, certainly the truth being stretched. In short, all the details that matter. I start in 1960 with men that changed the sport forever. This will be no contest. This will be a total annihilation. Well, let, let him do the talking. He does enough for both of us. I would like to announce my retirement from boxing. Oh, well, I've been up and down a number of times. It's all here. Every fighter and fight that matters. Welcome to 1968. By January 1968, Muhammad Ali was lost to boxing, a distant memory in some ways, his last few fights fading quickly from the public's attention. And at the same time, there were very few in the boxing business prepared to openly mourn his premature departure. There was no great outcry. He was touring and talking at universities, making the money he needed to fund his ongoing and bitter and vicious legal struggle with the American government over his refusal to be inducted into the American military. He was fighting to stay out of prison. It's that simple. Ali never had a slush fund to keep him happy and solvent. He needed to make money. There was talk of a boxing return. There was endless talk of boxing returns, to tell the truth. There were planned fights in foreign cities against a selection of opponents. A fight in Salt Lake City was mentioned. Rome, London were also suggested. There were some really serious suggestions and plans and some lunatic schemes. Even in exile and a long way from the ring, Ali was getting abuse from some of the fabled sports writers. The same men were witnesses to his very birth as a professional boxer in 1960 and were often adoring ringside observers at all of his major and controversial and unforgettable fights and witness to his brilliance in the boxing business. At the end of 1968, Jimmy Cannon, one of the greatest American sports writers, wrote about Ali's campus tour where the ex-fighter delivered his conman comedy with the unsophisticated evangelism and kindergarten philosophy. That's just cruel. It was, however, the same stuff America had been lapping up for the best part of eight years in the syndicated and immensely popular and influential columns written by Cannon and his cohorts. There was also a truly catastrophic UK television appearance on the Eamon Andrews show in early 1968. The producers of the show stitched Ali up, make no mistake. A man called David Suskind, at the time a US talk show host, joined via satellite. Suskind was a highly decorated World War II veteran and he was ruthless, destroying Ali, mocking the boxer's every answer, especially any attempt at humour. Suskind said, I think you're being used with your modest intelligence as a pawn by some vicious men. Ali kept on touring, kept on talking and kept on training. Not too hard, but enough to make sure that he was never too far from fighting. He needed to fight. It was costing him not getting in the ring. 
Here's Gene Kilroy, his business manager. Look at the sacrifice he gave. He gave the three biggest years of his life to sacrifice. And people, people admire him for the sacrifice. And I believed in my heart that he didn't lose his title in the ring. You know, and it's wrong. He took a stand. He's entitled to his belief. The business of heavyweight boxing, however, had to continue. In March, the latest fight for the heavyweight championship of the world. A title held for over 70 years by a list of men, not all distinguished and only ever held by one man at a time, took place at Madison Square Garden. The fight was sanctioned by the WBC, one of the two governing bodies operating in 1968. The other was the WBA, and they had created their own world champion in 1965. Their man, Ernie Terrell, had received a mixed reception. Ali had beaten Terrell and beaten him badly in 1967. The fight for the vacant WBC heavyweight championship of the world was between Joe Frazier and Buster Mathis. There were pickets outside the garden on the night. Ali was their champion and they considered what was going on inside to be a phony fight. They had a point, but Ali was banned. Frazier was unrepentant then and was until the end. People wanted the heavyweight division to stand still because Cassius didn't want to wear the olive green fatigues for Uncle Sam. That's what Frazier said. In the ring, it was the rematch between Frazier and the man that had beaten him in the Olympic trials back in 1964, Buster Mathis. In 1964, Mathis had won the right to represent America at the Tokyo Games with the Frazier win, but had injured his thumb and Frazier replaced him and then won the gold medal. They both turned professional. At first, Buster had the financial backing and security. Joe, meanwhile, had nothing. In late 1964, he was dependent on handouts. A destitute Olympic champion. That is too crazy to even consider in the modern business. By March 1968, they were both unbeaten. Mathis in 23 fights, Frazier in 19. However, Mathis had not had one single test. Frazier had been in with some great fighters, beating Oscar Bonavina, Eddie Machen, Doug Jones and George Chevallo. Frazier's early career remains one of the finest by any novice hopeful or heavyweight contender. He beat quality. Frazier was ready for sweet revenge. Mathis was not. On the night, 18,096 did give the pickets the slip, paying a total of $658,503 in gate receipts. It was a big fight in every way. Mathis was mobile, slippery in the ring from the start. Two of the three scoring officials had Buster up after six rounds. And then the fight switched. Frazier had been in gruelling fights that went beyond six rounds. When the fight finished in the 11th round, Frazier was in front on two scorecards and the third was even. Mathis toppled like a giant tree at the end, his eyes wide in shock and pain as he fell. Frazier had known all the time that he would win. Buster didn't have that mean thing in his heart. His size fooled people, said Frazier. Mathis was 6'3", had weighed over 300 pounds as a professional. But on the night against Frazier, he was a slim 243 pounds. He was still 39 pounds heavier than Frazier. It's odd. Those dimensions are not that impressive now, but Buster remains big Buster Mathis. He always will be. It was over. Frazier was the heavyweight champion of the world. Well, according to the WBC. Frazier was the champion on his own for about seven weeks until the WBA heavyweight tournament came to an end. 
The WBA had invited eight heavyweights in 1967 to fight each other in a series of eliminators to find a new heavyweight champion. The last two men left standing were Jimmy Ellis and Jerry Quarry. In April of 1968, Ellis beat Quarry in California over 15 rounds on points to become the heavyweight champion of the world, well, according to the WBA. Both Ellis and Quarry had won twice in the WBA tournament, one of the best tournaments to ever take place in boxing. They had each earned the right to fight for the WBA title. Ellis had taken care of Leotis Martin and Bonavina. Quarry beat Floyd Patterson and Fad Spencer. These are all very good fighters. On the night in California, Ellis outslicked Quarry to win his portion of the championship and end Frazier's solo reign, and also to start the ridiculous chaos that still exists 50 years later. Two world champions at one weight. That's madness. Ellis was, like Ali, from Louisville and was managed and trained by Angelo Dundee. Jimmy was known as a sweet man. He had started fighting as a professional at middleweight in 1961. And in 1964, he lost to the infamous Reuben Hurricane Carter when he weighed just a pound over the modern light middleweight limit. Carter, incidentally, was in big trouble in 1968. He was serving the second year of a life sentence for murder. He would eventually be cleared but would never fight again. There was immediate talk of an Ellis and Frazier fight, a showdown between the two men holding the two versions of the World Heavyweight Championship. The bosses at Madison Square Garden wanted to put it on. Boxing, in Ali's absence, needed it. Ellis and his people were not happy. Dundee was too smart for that. And Frazier knew it. The world title is negotiable, a ticket to make a lot of money. Angelo did what loads of boxing men before him had. He milked the title. However, Frazier was back in the Madison Square Garden ring in June against a Mexican called Manuel Ramos. There is no great tradition of Mexican heavyweights. Mexican bantamweights and featherweights occupy some of the most cherished places in the history of boxing, but not their big boys. Ramos was tough, no doubt in that. There was a lively first round, then Frazier finished it in the second round. In the fight's aftermath, Arthur Daly of the New York Times turned directly to the big question. It still is my conviction that the swift clay would jab Frazier dizzy and prevent him from getting inside to wreak havoc. It was at about this time that Frazier and Ali kept bumping into each other. Once they met in the park in the morning, both out doing roadwork, Frazier for a fight, Ali for a dream return. Ali told him to keep whooping bums and to wait until he had beaten Uncle Sam. And then Ali insisted they would make a lot of money. They were not at each other's throats. There was growing resentment, but no hate yet. In September, Ellis went to Stockholm to defend his WBA heavyweight championship against former champion Floyd Patterson. A man called Edvin Aldquist, who was once Ingemar Johansson's manager, outbid the hopeful venues in Las Vegas to take the fight to Sweden. Johansson had briefly been Sweden's only ever heavyweight world champion. Ingo, as he was known, retired a national idol in 1963. I met Ingo 25 years later, in London's East End, at an ancient boxing venue called York Hall. He was close to square at that time. His neck looked like it was about 36 inches round, and his hands, large when he was fighting, had filled out to cartoon proportions. He did look happy, though. Patterson had not had an easy decade. Oh, well, I've been up and down a number of times, but uh, fortunately, because of my uh, determination and my belief in myself, I keep coming back. 
Patterson was 34 at the time of the Ellis fight and an old 34, make no mistake. He had lost, regained and defended his world title against Johansson between 1959 and 1961. The Swedish public liked him. He would eventually marry a Swedish woman. There was a sticky moment before the fight when Dundee, in Ellis's corner, was not happy with the selection of referee Harold Vallan. He was from New York, just like Patterson. Vallan, you see, would be the sole arbiter at the end of the fight. No judges, just Vallan in Stockholm that night. At the end of 15 rounds, it was close enough, but most witnesses believed Patterson had regained his old title. Vallan raised the WBA champion's hand. Ellis got the nod by a score of nine rounds to six. There was scuffling and a near riot at the venue. Ellis had scraped across the line. Patterson would continue fighting for a long, long time. In December, Frazier squeezed in one final WBA defence when he beat Oscar Bonavina on points over 15 rounds. Frazier disliked Bonavina, and in 25 rounds he never dropped him. He regretted that. The rematch was easier, but not easy, said Frazier. Smoking Joe was the best of the two heavyweight champions, but he was still not Muhammad Ali. He would have to wait a couple of more years for the chance to silence the doubters. Long years. By the end of 1968, Frazier was ready to fight Ali, ready to shut the ex-champion up. In 1968, Sonny Liston finally fought in America again. He had four fights in Sweden in 1966 and 1967. There was a rumour that Sammy Davis Jr. was going to be his manager for his American return. It never happened. He was given a Californian licence to box in early 1968. The spectacle of his two fights with Ali had damaged his damaged reputation even further. He had been called the bum of bums in the press during his fighting absence. Back in America, Sonny had seven wins with seven stoppages in 1968. He remained far on the outside. None of the contenders would go near him. But the Sonny Liston story was not quite over. By the end of 1968, Joe Bugner, who was born in Hungary but raised in Britain, had fought 12 times with 11 wins. He was still only 18, and in the 70s he would be an important fixture in the heavyweight division. His boxing record is quite remarkable, and he finally quit after 83 fights in 1999. Bugner fought as a professional in four different decades. He was a legend of the British ring, and he deserves far more respect. In October of 1968, Big George Foreman won the heavyweight gold medal at the Mexico Olympics. He won four times, three by stoppage. He had only been boxing since 1966. He was a delinquent. Boxing saved his very soul. Foreman would turn professional the following summer and start his truly destructive path to glory. One day in 1974, he would be part of arguably the greatest fight in history, certainly the most famous. So, the old and the new in the Ali business were busy in 1968. Ali was busy zigzagging the country, making the dollars. In December 1968, he finally ended up behind bars. He was stopped in Florida for driving without a license and sentenced to 10 days in prison. He got sentenced for being Cassius Clay, said his lawyer, Henry Arrington. He was there, in his own words, for about a week. He never liked it, hated the food, the loss of freedom and the accommodation. It was his only prison stay. His legal battle with the military authorities was far from over, but he would never end up incarcerated for his views. 
Those anti-war views were, by the end of 1968, far more popular than they had been in 1966 and 1967 when he lost his right to fight. That ancient battle for hearts and minds, a dogfight the politicians in all wars must win, was nothing new to Ali. He had been battling all his life, race, prejudice, religious persecution and against people rejecting his ring brilliance. 1968 was a year without Ali in the boxing ring. He was gone, but not forgotten. He was also sorely missed. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 